All right, we're going to be in uh, in Luke chapter 23. We are working backwards, so we were in chapter 24 last week. We're in chapter 23 this week. Um, it's going to be a little different, a little different way of studying the Passion Week. So, so often in our churches, we and this I'm not saying this is at all the wrong way to do it, but I think we get very familiar with um, you know Palm Sunday. We talk about the triumphal entry, and you know then we. We have the Good Friday service when we talk about the crucifixion, and then we have our Easter service. And this year, we started with the resurrection on our Easter service, and now we're going to work backwards. Um, as you know, we've been working through the book of Luke for almost a year and a half, and we're going to get all the way through it. We're almost to the end here. And so uh, the goal a year and a half ago was, let's work through the book of Luke, and we'll hit the Easter story right around Easter next year. And actually, <laughs> we had to skip ahead to, to hit it. Um, but anyway, we're going to work backwards through the the Passion Week. One of the things that I think we will see, the, the theme of this whole series is glory through anguish, and that the road to um, the the road to the I don't know the road to the empty tomb was was you know led right through the cross. And the, the sufferings and all that, that led up to it. And, and to me, studying this, it's been very interesting to go backwards through it and to realize we just studied this. And so then I move back one chapter and realize, oh, when Jesus said this, he, he already knew. I mean, I know this, but it's like, ah, he's saying this knowing full well that this is going to happen. So I, ho- I hope you'll see some of that as we work through it. Um, let's read the passage this morning. We're going to start in uh, verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> if you'd like to follow along. It says, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb how, and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, this is this is a a bit of a, a shifting. I f- I feel this in studying in studying for my sermon. I feel the difference between the Gospels and the Epistles. When when Paul wrote Philippians, he's writing teaching, and so he can pretty much just teach what's on the page. And uh, when Luke wrote the book of Luke, he was very likely writing to Paul's lawyer in Rome helping him understand the full context of all the things Paul was teaching. And so most of what we have in the book of Luke is very, very informational. You'll notice all of the, um, all of the things that, that he, he say are very verifiable. He mentions people by name. He, 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 he writes things in such a way that if you wanted to follow, you know, in, in the modern time when this was written, if you wanted to follow up on any of these claims, you could go find that person and ask them about it and get their witness statement. Um, it, it, so it's very informational. There's, there's less um, less direct teaching, and yet um, what we have here is scripture, and all of it is profitable um, for reproof and for training in righteousness, and all of that according to Second Timothy. I want to, as as we look at this this theme of glory through anguish, obviously this passage and the passage immediately before, which we'll study next week. Um, these two passages most clearly show us the anguish side of things. Just like last week most clearly shows us the glory side of things with the resurrection. And so we, we feel this very um, dramatically in this passage. Um, <clears throat> starting at the beginning here, there is this scene. And it's very interesting because this is really Jesus' last little discourse almost sermonette kind of thing. Uh, you know, he, he hardly spoke a word to Pilate or Herod. Little one-word answers or no answer at all. You know, like a, like a sheep being led to slaughter. He opened not his mouth. But here, he, as, he, as he's headed to, he's, he's, you know, along with the cross, is on his way to Calvary. And... And there are women mourning for him. And he stops. Their, their, their cries of mourning fall on the most compassionate ears ever to listen on this planet. And he stops and addresses them. He hardly, ha- he hardly spared a word for Pilate or Herod. 
But these women, he stops and converses with them and, and, and addresses their grief. I think, I think it's very interesting. And after this, after this, broken fragments of things that he says, mostly in prayer to the Father, a couple of just sentences to John and his mother, um, a, a, a sentence to the thief next to him. And so this is, this is interesting. This is, we should take careful note of what he's saying here. And I, I'm going to kind of zero in on this. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Is anyone else confused by that last statement? If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What is he talking about? I've always loved that some of these little statements that Jesus makes that's like, huh? <laughs> you're, not, you're not far off. Um, I, I had to do some looking up on this and, and some, some reading on this. That what Jesus' statement, his whole statement here to these women is actually, um, it's prophecy. Now, it's real easy for Jesus to prophesy because he knows the end from the beginning. He can see all of time laid out in front of him. And he, he is uh, referring likely to two things. Certainly the end times, um, but also the fall of Jerusalem that would happen within the next 40 years. Um, in 70 AD, Rome came through and basically leveled Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. Um, there was a Jewish revolt. And there had been some other Jewish revolts, like the, like revolts like the Maccabean revolt and, and things like that. And the, 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 Rome, the Romans, during the, during the period of time that Jesus is there in Jerusalem and, and the apostles and all of that, they, they kind of had this deal because Israel was so far away from Rome. They kind of worked out this deal. It was like, listen... We'll let you guys govern. You got some religious system here. We'll let you guys kind of govern yourselves by those rules as long as you don't cause any problems for us. You're still going to have a Roman governor and some soldiers here, to, you know, because you are part of the empire. But like, if you guys, you guys keep your heads down and don't cause us problems, we'll let you do your little religious stuff. That was kind of Rome's attitude toward them. That's why. That's why whenever there would be, you know, basically, if if it ever got loud. The Romans would show up and be like, "Wait, hey, 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 what's going on here? What's going on here?" And so, um, the, and the uh, the Pharisees and the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling, you know, the chief priests, that whole council, they, they really kind of used that to their advantage. They would, um, if they didn't like what Jesus was saying, they would get the crowds all riled up, and Rome would show up and shut it down. And that was that was kind of their their whole plan. And in fact, we see how they actually used that to their advantage to even get Jesus crucified. They got got things stirred up and got Rome to go ahead and, and, and crucify him. Um, I want to read uh, a, a couple of a couple of commentary things on this particular uh, this particular statement that Jesus made. This one's kind of long. He says this is from Albert Barnes notes on the whole Bible. He says he says, uh, this seems to be a proverbial expression. A green tree is not easily set on fire. A dry one is easily kindled and burns rapidly. 
And the meaning of the passage is, if they, that is the Romans, will do these things to me, who, you know, I'm innocent and blameless, if they punish me in this manner in the face of justice, what will they do in relation to this guilty nation? What security have they that heavier judgments will not come upon them? What desolations and woes may be expected when injustice and oppression have taken the place of justice and have set up a rule over this wicked people? Our Lord alludes evidently to the calamities that would come upon them by the Romans in the destruction of their city and temple. This passage may be applied, however, without impropriety to the great beauty and force uh, and with great beauty and force to the punishment of the wicked in the future world. And so uh, he's partially, he's referring both to the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen shortly thereafter and also to the end times. Thus applied, it means that the sufferings of the Savior as compared with the sufferings of the guilty were like the burning of a green tree as compared to the burning of one that is dry. A green tree is not adapted to burn. A dry one is. So the Savior, innocent pure and holy, stood in relation to suffering. There were sufferings which an innocent being could not endure. There was remorse of conscience, the sense of guilt, punishment properly so-called, and the the eternity of woes. He had the consciousness of the innocent, and he would not suffer forever. He had no passions to be enkindled that would rage and ruin the soul. The sinner is adapted to sufferings like a dry tree to the fire. He is guilty and will suffer all the horrors of remorse of conscience. He will be punished literally. He has raging and impetuous passions and they will be enkindled in hell and will rage forever and ever. The meaning is that if the innocent Savior suffered so much, the sufferings of the sinner forever in hell must be more unspeakably dreadful. Yet who could endure the sufferings of the Redeemer on the cross for a single day? Who could bear them forever and ever, aggravated by all the horrors of a guilty conscience and all the terrors of unrestrained anger, hate, fear, and wrath? That's powerful. And I, I, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have understood. The, the, the thing is, sometimes, sometimes, uh, he will say, Jesus will say things or Paul will say things that are, that are contemporary sayings in first cent, in the first century world. And so he would have said that and, and it would have made sense to the people standing around him. They wouldn't have understood the prophecy of, um, the destruction of Jerusalem, but they, they would have understood the fire reference in a way that, that we perhaps didn't. But it's interesting what he, he, he mentions when, when, when um, injustice and oppression have taken the place of justice. You know, it wouldn't be long after this that Nero would take over as emperor of Rome. Sentiment toward Christians and Jews alike would turn very sour. And, and the Romans would be out for, out for blood, basically, um, just done dealing with them. And, and the, the perversion of justice where you have this, um, you know, they're allowed to govern themselves by their, by the Old Testament and the council of, uh, of rabbis, which would have been the, the, the Sanhedrin, that, the, the, the council of priests, um, they were supposed to be this bastion of, of justice governed by Old Testament law and yet they were the very group that conspired against the Savior. The Holy One of God 
who was completely blameless and innocent, they conspired against him and, and committed the greatest injustice uh, perpetuated against anyone. If they do these things to someone who is innocent, how much worse will it be for someone who is actually guilty? What a powerful, powerful statement that he makes there. True, true of Rome and true of the wrath of God poured out against the guilty. Another, another note that I'd like to draw our attention to is as he, as he climbs the, you know, the hill of Calvary, um, the place of the skull where they crucified him. It is interesting to note that very likely from, from all of the, uh, all of the theologians that I talked to, um, this is very likely, in fact, I think it's almost universally accepted that this is the same mountain on which, the same mountain on which God sent Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac and stayed his hand. To, to me, the, the putting those two events so far apart in Scripture and in time next to each other and realize in this very place where God said, you don't have to do that. I will provide the sacrifice. In the short term, he provided a ram for Abraham. But in the long term, he provided instead of Abraham's son, his own son who was also a descendant of Abraham to ultimately fulfill that, um, that command. Um, not sure of an application of that other than just appreciation. That there's, there's great meaning. God doesn't forget about things in the past. That, that, and everything he does is intentional and on purpose. And... Um, to realize that Abraham understood that his son, the son of promise, was going to be sacrificed on this on this altar. And and God's staying of his hand was to say, It will be one of your sons, it will be a son of promise, but it's not this one. It will be Jesus. As we move through the passage here. They're putting him on the cross. They're, they're nailing his hands and feet to the, uh, to the wood of this cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Another commentator said in, in relation to that, they know not what they do. Do we ever? Sin is always greater than it seems because sinners never know the extent of the loss involved. We, we cannot appreciate what it cost to forgive our sin, particularly in the moment when we're doing it, when, we, when we're thinking I'm doing what I'm doing because I want what I want, and so I'm choosing to sin. In those moments, we never appreciate what it cost to forgive that sin. Sin is always greater than it seems. Isn't that so true? They cast lots to divide his garments. Just a couple of, or just last week, I think it was, we, we read, um, we read the, the, the passage in Isaiah where the, that exact thing is foretold that that would happen. I mean, down to the, the smallest detail, prophecy was fulfilled. 
in this, in, in every, every aspect of things Jesus said, things that happened to him that he had no control over. It's not like Jesus knew all the prophecies and was just working real hard to make sure they all got fulfilled. I mean, even this, the, the soldiers that crucified him of their own volition cast lots to divide his garments, just like Isaiah said they would. We then see um, three different people that have the same attitude and they represent, they represent the lost. They represent those that do not believe and they have the same attitude. The most, the most obvious is the, 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 the chief priest and the rulers. They scoffed at him in verse 35 saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. One thing that's clear is they understood in the things that Jesus said that Jesus was not a good teacher. Jesus claimed to be God. In other words, if he's not God, he's not a good teacher. He's either a crazy person or he's lying. Or he's God. You're given, C.S. Lewis famously kind of put it that way. Okay, you don't get the option of, well, I think Jesus was a good teacher. No, Jesus claimed to be God. He's either God, or he's crazy and thinks he's God, or he knows he's not God and he's lying to you. It's one of those three. Those are the choices you get. You don't get the Jesus is a good teacher choice. The rulers and the chief priests understood this. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. They understood very clearly the claims that Jesus made when he claimed to be God. When he said, I am, claiming to be God, they understood that that was what he was claiming. Clearly, they were lost. They were the ones uh, perpetuating this whole thing. The soldiers also mocked him in verse 36, saying kind of the same thing. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him that said king of the Jews. Um, some controversy over that inscription. The, the, the uh, Herod had that sign made up. This is the king of the Jews, written in three different languages, so that anybody coming through Jerusalem around that time, which would have been a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people who had been scattered for a lot of reasons over history, would come to Jerusalem for Passover. Um, it's kind of a pilgrimage thing that, that some of them would do when they could. That's why this guy from North Africa named Simon, Cyrene is in North Africa. It's like Morocco or something like that. Um, Oh, maybe, maybe Egypt, but it's, it's, it's in, it's in that region. He had traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. And so he had this sign written in three different languages. Here is the king of the Jews. And the, and the rulers didn't like that. They said, oh, come on, don't write that. Is it recorded in another, in another gospel? Said, don't write that. Say that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And Herod, in, uh, in a prophetic way, unknown, unbeknownst to himself, says, what I have written, I have written. Um, you know, God used Herod in that to put that sign up that said, this is the king of the Jews. Herod also, as a Roman official, would have been making a statement, a, a powerful statement for Rome. Saying, if you want to you rebel against Rome, you want to raise up your own leader that's going to rival Rome, this is what we do to them. If this is the king of the Jews, let everybody know this is how Rome deals with insurrection. This is how Rome deals with revolt. We don't play. This is the king of the Jews. And so the soldiers were mocking him on that front, not about him claiming to be God, but about him claiming to be the king of the Jews. 
If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A king would have power and command great armies and things like that. And yet, here, the king hung alone on a cross. One of the criminals also railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. These three people, the chief priests, the soldiers, and the one thief on the cross, had the same attitude. A lot like what we talked about last week, this suffering must mean that you are not who you say you are. It's a very short-sighted, um, a very short-sighted view that says this, this what's in front of me must be all there is. Clearly, this is the end for you. Um, you must not be the king. You must not be God. You must not be the savior. I think it's important for us, whether we are believers or not believers, to realize that the timeline of eternity is much longer than just what we can see in front of us. Let's, I mean, it, we can all, um, even, even someone who is an unbeliever can recognize that our lives are this tight, like if you, if you, uh, made a timeline from as far back as, you know, antiquity, you can debate how far back that goes, but, you know, let's start at the first thing you can put a date on and just come forward and put major events on the timeline and then and then start looking at how much of that timeline represents an individual's life. And all of a sudden you realize there is much more going on than just what I get to witness in the span of my lifetime. And Jesus understood as as believers ought to understand that there is there is a timeline of eternity that is so much more than our lives and what we get to witness within it. And that, that God does not settle all of his accounts here on earth. Here's uh, something from John Calvin, uh, one of the great reformers. He says, the general meaning, and he's referring back to the, the, the lamentation of the, of the women who were, who were mourning for, for Jesus along the way. He says, the general meaning is that the lamentation of the women is foolish. If they do not likewise expect and dread the awful judgment of God, which hangs over the wicked. God, who now, who now permits his own people to be unjustly oppressed, will not ultimately allow the wicked to escape punishment. The wicked gain nothing by a little delay. In other words, that, that God doesn't immediately crush the wicked. They seem to prosper. Bad people seem to get away with bad things. And good people suffer. I put all of that in scare quotes because there are no good people. There are not. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There are no good people. Jesus was the only good person ever. Jesus said to the the guy who called him good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. The fact that God doesn't immediately punish the wicked doesn't mean they're getting away with anything. Just because we don't, within our lifetimes, witness the destruction of the wicked doesn't mean that God is done. The timeline of eternity is much longer. And God always punishes sin. He will either punish the sinner or he will punish the Savior. 
In other words, the, the Savior, Jesus, took the full punishment of God's wrath against sin. But those that don't accept that, that payment for their sin will suffer the punishment of God's wrath against their sin on their own. The wicked gain nothing by a little delay. For when God shall have humbled his faithful servants by fatherly chastisements, he will rise with a drawn sword against those whose sins he appeared for a time not to observe. That's just powerful. You read the Psalms when, when David cries out, why do the wicked prosper? Why, you know, I, I look around Habakkuk, you know, he looks around, why, why, God, why, I know you see it, do you not care? Or, or do you, do you not see it? He appears for a time not to observe, but he sees. And he will settle his accounts, but not always on this side of eternity. We come then to really my favorite, my favorite little section of this passage, verses 40 to 43. It's my favorite because we see someone in the midst of all of this horror and anguish, we see the glory. This one thief on the cross gets saved. How do I know he gets saved? Well, you've heard us boil down the, um, the, the, the plan of salvation to, to A, B, C. Admit, believe, and call. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sin. And call on the Lord to save you. We see those, all three of those things right here. He rebukes the other one saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And here it is. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's admitted his sin and confessed it even. He has agreed, what I did was wrong and this is just punishment for what I did. This is the law. And I am, I am suffering for what I actually did. I deserve this. There's confession. But this man has done nothing wrong. He believes. He really believes that this, this Jesus is innocent of what he's being accused of. And furthermore, but yeah, but okay, maybe that's a stretch, but does he actually believe that Jesus is God? And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees this man dying next to him. And believes this is not the end for him. He preached about a kingdom. He has a kingdom. In that statement, he also calls on the Lord to save him. And, and so here we have, he admits his sin. He believes in Jesus and he calls on him to save him. How do we know he got saved? Well, the next statement from Jesus himself And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You're going to die today. And so am I. We'll be together in paradise. That's so powerful. Mingled with that is is some sadness. Why do some believe while others don't? These two men on either side of Jesus both witnessed the same thing, had committed, were guilty of similar sin. 
They both heard the same message, crucified next to the same Christ. One believed, and one died in his sins, lost. We can never know. We can never know why some believe and others don't. It's something we have to grapple with to realize that in our churches we may have someone sitting next to us who has heard all the same messages. We assume, but yeah, they're probably saved. Maybe. Maybe not. Just because we've all heard the same thing doesn't mean that we have all actually called on God to forgive our sins. Here we see in verse 43 that 1 John 1.9 is true. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He must have been cleansed from all unrighteousness because God does not allow sin into heaven. Jesus was taking on the sin of the whole world, including the sin of the thief on the cross next to Him and paying for it. He was taking the punishment. While Rome might punish Him for His sin against Rome, His real sin was much greater. It was sin like we read in our our prayer of confession this morning. Against you, you only have I sinned. Our sin is primarily against God. And that punishment, a crucifixion, a simple crucifixion for a thief, was not enough to cover that. Jesus had to take the full wrath of God to cleanse him from his unrighteousness. He had a repentant spirit, unlike the one who lashed out in anger and bitterness against Christ. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This one instead has a repentant spirit. And he demonstrates faith. Now, here in verse 46, is it's a six hour. There's, there's, this, uh, there's darkness over the land for three hours. Now, I've seen a partial eclipse of the sun. It was kind of cool. It got real dim, like it was hazy, but it wasn't. And that was real weird. It was like you had those like weird amber sunglasses on. Everything was like the wrong color. But even full eclipses of the sun, I've seen videos of it. You know, it's like for, for a few moments, it's dark, and then it's bright again. This isn't how simple eclipses work. Let's just be really clear on that. For three hours, the Bible says the sun's light failed while the light of the world, Jesus, was being snuffed out. So the enemy thought. And what Jesus says here, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is interesting to me because... The hands of the Father, while he, while yes, he was handed, he was, he was arrested and, and um, captured by the hands of the council and the, 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 the Sanhedrin, and he was handed over into the hands of Rome, and he was sacrificed at the hands of Roman soldiers, yet Jesus understood that the real agony that he had to bear was not the physical pain of the cross and his beatings. The worst part of the agony was poured out on him by the hands of the Father. The wrath against sin. God hates sin. I mean, read some stuff in the Old Testament. Read the book of Revelation. God hates sin. Look at how God is promising to someday punish sin in the book of Revelation. He hates it. 
He loves people made in his image, but he hates sin and he cannot allow it. He can't allow it into his presence. He can't allow it to go unpunished. God hates sin. That is the wrath that was poured out on the Son by the Father. And yet it's into those very hands that he commits his spirit. The same hands that are pouring out wrath upon him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, uh, when, when someone who loves you wounds you, um, sometimes there's a good reason for that. When, when, a, when, a, when a parent has to punish a child, it's out, it's, it should be out of love to protect that child. Um, and Jesus understood the purpose of what he was doing. This wasn't forced upon him. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly took this punishment from, from, the, from a loving father who yet had to punish sin. Jesus commits his spirit into those very hands. And we see one of the soldiers, perhaps, perhaps one of the ones that was, uh, was mocking him before, we don't know, but the, but the, the soldier in charge, the centurion, saw what had taken place and he praised God, saying certainly this man was innocent. He believed. We know from, the, uh, from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up and preaches, everybody it's the same crowd. Understand, Acts chapter 2 is the same crowd of people. It's, the, it's like a couple days later. They, they, they received the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're all hunkered down. This is like Wednesday or something of the same, like Jesus rises from the dead on Sunday. And this is like, I don't know, maybe Wednesday. It's like within a week. And you have, you, you still have all these people from all over the world that are still in Jerusalem that came for Passover. They hadn't left yet. Peter gets up and preaches. Remember, uh, used to be a full-time fisherman. He preaches and everybody hears it in their own language, which is really cool. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that about 3,000 people got saved that day and believed. How many of those 3,000 were in, verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle? How many people went away that day with one attitude toward Christ and a few days later would believe? Very powerful thing. <clears throat> we we come last. Lastly, oh, oh yeah, the the, um, the centurion had the had the same attitude as the second thief. He was willing to recognize maybe this suffering doesn't mean what I what it seems to mean, and maybe he really is who he says he is. This last section, we, we see Joseph of Arimathea. We, we know him famously as the man who donated his, his tomb. Uh, clearly a wealthy man. He donated his tomb to, uh, for the use of, of the disciples to bury Jesus. But it's interesting to note that he was a member of the council. He was a member of, uh, I, I believe that would have been the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the, the body of people that decided we are going to do away with this man. There are four Pharisees that we know that turn out okay. One is Paul. 
Saul of Tarsus, who, uh, who becomes the Apostle Paul after his encounter with Christ. We know Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and came to, uh, he would come to Jesus at night and, and try to, you know, understand more. And Jesus would explain the scriptures to him. We know Joseph of Arimathea, one of the members of the council that, um, you know, was, was not, was not, uh, in agreement with the other things. And one other guy in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel. Oh, it's just a great name. Um, but he's the one that said, hey, if this isn't of God, we should probably, uh, just let it run its course. But if it is of God, this whole Jesus thing, we probably don't want to take up too strong a position against these guys. Because we might be found to oppose, be opposing God. These are the only four, the four Pharisees that we see that ever speak out and are, um, kind of with the good guys. But Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. I like that phrase there. He, those looking for the kingdom could see Jesus as the Christ. And it's interesting because the council of, of the, the, the chief priests their whole job was to study and understand the Old Testament. Their whole job included pouring over prophecy. All of the Old Testament points to Christ. How were they not looking for the kingdom, but instead they were just looking for the rules to follow so God would like them better? That's not how it works. We're looking for the wrong thing. I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that the Christian life is not about getting on board with the rules of being a Christian and so now you're a good person and now God's okay with you. That is not the Christian life. Should Christians do good things? Well, yes. Just out of appreciation and thanksgiving for what God has done for us and to represent Him better, it doesn't change our standing with God. Jesus changes our standing with God. Those looking for the kingdom could see Jesus is the Christ. The ones that couldn't see it weren't looking for the kingdom. See, to the rest of the council, the coming of the kingdom meant they would lose power. It meant that um, this whole system that they've got was going to be over, and they didn't want that. But just as Joseph, he was looking for the kingdom of God. I want to, I want to, I'm going to close with that and, and ask, I want to pose a question. Are you looking for the kingdom of God? Because the next time Jesus comes, and he is coming again, he's not going to offer the kingdom, he's going to instate the kingdom. He is going to come, as, as John Calvin described God here in the end times, he will rise with a drawn sword against those whose sins he appeared not to observe. Are your sins forgiven? Have you, have you recognized like the thief on the cross, I deserve punishment for my sin? Jesus is who he says he is. God, please forgive me.
It really is that simple. We should be looking for the kingdom. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, there will be no more chances. Let's be ready. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this powerful passage where we see the the road to glory paved in anguish. God, we see that the, the sufferings of our Savior, they brought about for us a way to know you and a way to have our sins forgiven. God, we can never be good enough. We can never meet your standard. Only Jesus could. And we can only enter into your presence by taking his place because he took our place. God, I pray that you would um, cut deep into our hearts with, the, with your words this morning. That we would take a hard look and ask ourselves, am I looking for the kingdom? Am I ready for the kingdom when Jesus comes back? In Jesus' name, amen.